0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: The amounts of data that many of us come in contact with on a daily basis is staggeringly high, and being able to process it all and understand it as well can be a daunting task. Our next guest believes that by trying to adjust our type of thinking, that we may be able to better understand all of this data and thus be able to leverage this information to our advantage. Scott Page is a professor of complex systems, political science, and economics at the University of Michigan. He is also the author of the new book, The Model Thinker, What You Need to Know to Make Data Work for You. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be on. Thank you. Uh, You are, are basing a lot of this on this idea of many model thinking. Can you take us into what exactly that is?
0: Yeah, let me give sort of a, a short version of this. We live in this time where there's two fundamental things going on. One is, as you mentioned, just like a fire hose or hairball of data, right? Tons of data out there. And at the same time, we have this sort of recognition that the the problems and challenges that we confront are complex. And by that I mean high dimensional, lots of interdependencies, difficult to understand. So then the question is, you know, what do we do? How do we use that data to confront the complexity? Now the the sort of philosophy I'm putting forward goes as follows is that you kind of have to arrange that data on some sort of model. You want to think of a model as some sense, is as, as Charlie Munger, the famous investor, describes it, sort of like a lattice work of understanding yeah. on which you can array the data. But the issue is models by definition are simple. So there's a disconnect, right? I'm trying to like understand something complex with something that's simple. But what I've bought with that simplicity is logical coherence, right? Mm-hmm. But what I've lost in that simplicity is any notion of sort of coverage. There's just too much stuff I've got to leave out. So instead, what you can do, what I propose you do, is you actually bring an ensemble of models to bear. And in fact, this is a thing, like people in machine learning, in some sense, have been doing this. So all the fancy stuff going on in AI, if you really unpack what's going on in those sophisticated algorithms, they really are sort of ensembles of little algorithms and little rules. And so the idea is... You know, any one model is going to be wrong, but many models are going to give you sort of not only a lot of coverage, but also sort of a collection of coherent understandings of a complex phenomena.
1: So how unique is it in this culture, you know, in just people in the business world or, you know, CEOs or whatever they might be doing to have that type of processing, to have that type of thinking where you're potentially using a variety of models to to understand data?
0: Well, you know, so it's interesting is when you look at people who are really on top of their game. So people like, you know, Charlie Munger, you know, who who talks about, you know, he, you know, sort of use his his strategy from the beginning has been use a lot of models. Right. Um, you know, Andy Lowe from MIT in analyzing the you know 2008 financial crash says, boy, if you read it, there's he read he read like 13 books on it. He says if you know, read each of these books, each one of these books kind of lays out a different. Story as to why we saw the financial crash, and each one is kind of right in its own way. So if you look at something like inequality, if you were you know trying to figure out how do we sort of you know reduce inequality, if you read Piketty, you'd just get one particular version. You know R is bigger than G. This is about the wealth accumulating money, but that wouldn't say anything about assortative mating. It wouldn't say anything about you know it doesn't explain Zuckerberg or Gates, right? And so you yeah. sort of think, wait a minute, doesn't make sense. So this. The people who are really at the forefront of this, like Regina Dugan, who used to run DARPA and then was at Google and Facebook, you know, have this, you know, she promoted this idea of collective intelligence There's a whole sort of set of people in this space now. And what Regina would say and other people in the collective intelligence community is collective intelligence comes from ensembles of smart people who know different things. Right. Right. And so I'm sort of saying, you know, you can't be many smart people, but what you can do is sort of like you know, you yourself or with other people construct, you know, a handful of models, and that will allow you just a much richer understanding of anything you want to look at.
1: Well, it, models have been around for, for quite some time in, in various forms and in various iterances. So how ha- has big data impacted the process of using models?
0: Oh, yeah, so that's a great question. So let's take something like a famous model for epidemiology called the SIR model. Okay. S stands for susceptible, I stands for infected, R stands for recovered. And okay. so what happens is the disease, you know, somebody catches the disease or, you know, there's some mutation in someone's flu virus, and suddenly you're, you know, infected. Right. Well, to get somebody else infected, that would be a susceptible person. They have to run into an infected person. Well, early on, there aren't many infected people. And so the curve starts out really slow, but then as there's more and more infected people, then it gets really fast, right? And it gets steeper, but then once almost everybody's been infected and people have been sort of are, have recovered, it flattens out. So you get an S-shaped curve. Right. Now, it used to be at the Center for Disease Control, I mean, let's go back, you know, 30 years, so we're safely in kind of the no data zone. It'd be like, well, you know, we're kind of getting a, there seems to be an outbreak of flu in this region, right? right? Or like right. the swine flu, like, do we vaccinate people? Now, and there's people like Aaron King at the University of Michigan, Marissa Eisenberg here, two of my colleagues who do this. You can get, you know, 40 days of data and you can say, oh my goodness, this is going to be, you can, you know, you can predict within a range how many people are going to get this disease. And you could and you can intervene and say, you know, should we quarantine? So, like this summer, here's an example. This summer, um, two big league baseball players got hand, foot, and mouth disease. Which yes. Is something people usually to get in high school. Yes go to Singapore go to like the South Department at Singapore. Singapore actually keeps like monthly data on exactly how many people have the disease. Wow, right? Whereas here it was just kind of like you know we had had intrepid reporters outside you know clinics in Philadelphia saying like doctors told me they'd seen a rare number of cases. You know, yeah as we get more data on this, you know for all we know we could have had an epidemic, right That disease could have mutated. now you can fit it. The other thing you can do, and this is where the the one of the premises of the book is, Many model thinking works in two ways. One is, you know, given any problem, you can apply many models. But the other thing is, given a model, like if I learn the SIR model, I can apply it anywhere. And so anything that has this kind of like viral-like spread, you can sort of fit the model. And So it turns out these physicists took the SIR model and they applied it to Justin Bieber, like the spread of Justin Bieber. And they showed that Bieber fever was actually kind of worse than the mumps. It's literally one of the most contagious diseases we've ever seen. Which is just hilarious, right, on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's not because if you're Bieber's manager and you fit that SIR model, yeah. you know you – know, I mean, the thing is the curve starts out kind of flat, right? But you know this is a diffusion process. Yeah. You can anticipate things. So you turn down certain opportunities because you know better ones are going to come along, right? Or you start getting that next element because you just have a better sense of how things are going to go.
1: By the way, I should note, going back to that hand, foot, and mouth disease example that you gave, it turned out that both players were with New York baseball teams. So realistically, you could have even formulated that something was going on in the New York area specifically where that's concerned.
0: That's right. And you can also, you know, you can use, again, you can use models and figure out – how many hospitals and how many clinics do we have to call to find out how many people have come in with this to figure out if we have a potential epidemic here? Right. Absolutely.
1: Scott Absolutely. Scott Page is the author of the book, The Model Thinker, What You Need to Know to Make Data Work for You. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Loney 21 You bring up uh, the fact that You believe that if you can use this many-model thinking, that it will end up, in part, one of the benefits of it, uh, will lead towards greater wisdom. Can you take us further into that?
0: Yeah, so there's a wonderful um, sort of way to organize how we think about the world called the wisdom hierarchy, and it sort of works as follows. Imagine out there is all this data, right, that's just floating out there. Right. What we do to make sense of the world is really bin that data into information. So when I say unemployment, right, I'm aggregating something. Or if I any any graph you see in any newspaper or any, you know, number of like, you know, women voters for Trump or something, that's binning information into categories. And that's inform you know, that categorization we think of as information. Right. What models sort of do is they turn those bins, they find relationships within those bins. So things like force equals mass times acceleration is a piece of knowledge, right? Um, you know, things like supply equals demand is a piece of knowledge. And so what you do, like, what's interesting is a lot of universities, especially engineering schools, when you go there in freshman orientation, they'll say to you, you're here for four years, and your goal is to sort of accumulate as many pieces of knowledge, as many thinking tools as you possibly can. Right. Right? What wisdom then is, so you sort of get data, information, and then knowledge. And then on top of this pyramid is wisdom. And wisdom consists of sometimes knowing which piece of knowledge to apply, right? And other times sort of combining the knowledge in an interesting way, right? right? And sort of thinking about um, how it works. Now, what I found fun about thinking through that transition from knowledge to wisdom is realizing just how complicated it is. So I I wrote a paper with Elaine Landemore, who's just a brilliant young political philosopher at Yale, and there's this guy Habermas, who's a political philosopher, who talks about sort of you know, reaching consensus. Mm-hmm. And we realized, let's suppose that you're a, you know, a classic sort of Keynesian macroeconomist, and you spent 20 years learning sophisticated Keynesian models of the economy that you fit to all this data. And suppose I'm a real business cycle economist, like from the University of Chicago, and I have spent 20 years learning that. It's not like we can get together in a room for 20 minutes and reach some grand consensus right. <laughs> on a new model of the economy. Sure, yeah. So she has this notion of what she calls you know, positive dissensus among the models in the sense that you know we may sit down and hash it out. And, and what we kind of hope is that we can achieve wisdom. by me saying, you know, actually, you may be making more sense here than I am, or your model fits better. Or given the things I leave out of my model and the things that you include in your model, you know, maybe we should put a little m- more weight on what you're thinking we should do. And I and again it also depends on what are we using the model for. I mean you could be using these models to just explain data. Sure. You could be using them to guide policy. You could be using them to design policy. Right? And so the um, depending on what you're trying to do, you know, you may use the sort of ensemble models in different ways. But if it, but if you just stick to one, you know, by definition you're leaving out a lot of variables and you're just really likely to make a mistake.
1: You, at the end of the book, uh, bring up two fairly significant issues that we are dealing with uh, in this country and in other parts of the world, but we'll keep it on the United States for uh, this. Uh, The opioid crisis and income inequality. And you talk about... The, the, the potential use of many-model thinking to try and and better understand and maybe kind of find a path to improving the problems in both of those areas. Right. Uh, let's, I, I want to do both of them. So can, can we start with the opioid crisis and, and take us through the thinking on that, and then we'll get to the income inequality.
0: Sure. So, you know, with, with opioids, one of the things is to think about, you know, one thing you could use is just sort of a simple sort of, almost linear model to ask, did these work? And that's sort of what the government does when they do testing, right? And when you do that, I mean, the evidence shows that, you know, they really did reduce pain. They really did allow people to get back to work sooner, right? And you think, okay, if you just use that model, you'd say, let's approve these things. But another model you can apply to that, let's let's, maybe just do kind of, you know, two on this one, is something called a Markov model. A Markov model, what happens is you imagine someone in a state, so I could be in a state of pain, I could be in a state of addiction, or I could be in a sort of a no-pain-everything's-fine state, right? And you can imagine people moving between those three things, but if I'm in the, no, if I'm in the pain state, to get me to the no-pain state, you might give me opioids, right? So that would be the intervention. Right. The danger is, is that I might move to the addicted state, and so what you do when you do drug approval, they estimate those models, like what's the likelihood of being addicted? But here's the tricky thing about one of these Markov models, which is kind of like a a systemic model, right? People are kind of moving between these things. They're nonlinear. So if I change the probability of being addicted from 1% to 3%, let's say, right? And if once I'm in the addicted state, it's really hard to get out of there, then that small increase from 1% to 3% can have the number of addicts move from, say, 2% to 8%, right? And so you can get this huge amplification. But when they do the test, they didn't give people, um, you know, they gave people, you know, small amounts of opioids. But then once doctors are prescribing these, they were giving people, you know, a month's supply. Right. When you give people a month's supply, you have just a slight increase in the probability of becoming addicted. In fact, you know, there's some evidence of this, but in rural areas where somebody has to drive a long way in, the doctor is probably more likely to give them a longer prescription.
1: Correct. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, then once you're in that addicted box, you know, once you're in that state, you can't get out. Yep. And so what you realize is that had they, you know, they knew opioids were potentially addictive, but had they, had they used a Markov model more seriously, they would have said, they'd have looked at, you know, this is kind of like a comparative, you know, sort of what they call comparative statics, where you change one variable and ask what the effect is, Right. you'd have recognized by the threat of addiction, you know, the danger of addiction is so high that we should limit prescriptions to five days right out of the box, right? We never should, we shouldn't have even goofed around with it, right? But they didn't because, you know, partly because they never did tests where they gave people long numbers of days taking opioids because they didn't want to create addicts. Right. Right? Right. But, um, so that's a case of just by having a single second, you know, a single, you know, kind of orthogonal, nonlinear model that allows for the possibility of addiction, right? I mean, they had linear models of addiction and the rate was low, but, you know, they that second model, that Markov model, would have really made it much clearer that there was a big danger there.
1: And, and I guess then, uh, using that example specifically, is, is that who would have? Who do you think would have been responsible for maybe even considering that Markov model? Because you could go to the medical community, you could go to the pharma industry, you could go to the, the the local governments. Because I totally understand the 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 issue of distance being one where this problem is concerned, being a significant issue when you think about some of the rural areas that we have around this country, and in a factor of ease, wanting to be able to supply the patient with enough to handle 30 days instead of having to come back a long distance every five days
0: right and you know there's some states like idaho where you can prescribe painkillers by phone you know because yeah. it's a largely rural state And on the one hand you understand why that's true right you know for again for these trans you know just the travel cost and the you know if somebody's in pain you don't want them to have to drive 75 miles every three days to get the drugs but at the same time given the downside risk one might think that, you know, you could have small amounts of pills coming on a regular basis. People yeah. have to check in by video. Yep. There's all sorts of things that might be done. Um, but again, you know, oftentimes we base policy on sort of linear thinking, you know, and, and a lot of the stuff that's going on now where people are trying to, like, use lots of data to sort of get at causality by doing natural experiments. Yep. They're doing what I call in the book sort of big coefficient thinking. Like, look, the co- you know, make inc- – Improving teacher quality is good. You know, increasing information about scholarship programs is good. And those, that's all true. But the thing is that's, that's assuming a, a linear model of the world. You, know, you might also want to construct another model of the world that includes some feedbacks in it. right? And Markov models are one type. But, and, and in doing so, it would, I think, cause you to be you know, possibly more conservative in the policies you undertake. It also, though, I think in, you know, in the case of the opioids, it would have it just would have jumped out at you. Absolutely, would have jumped out at you.
1: All right, let's switch it and look at the issues surrounding income inequality.
0: Right. Yeah, so this one's, I mean, you know, I had so much fun writing that portion of the chapter, and, you know, and there's a part of me that, you know, of the book, and there's a part of me that thought, like, wow, I I could have and probably should have written just an entire book just on that, like the many lenses of income inequality. But let's throw out just a couple. So, Piketty's model, essentially says the following, that you know, that returns to capital are larger than the growth rate in the economy. And one of the models I describe in the book is something called the rule of 72, which mm-hmm. says if you take your interest rate and divide it into 72, that's how long it takes for your money to double. Yeah. So if the rich are getting 6% on their money, every 12 years it doubles, right? So yep. in 48 years, right, it's going to double four times, which is a 16-fold increase. If the economy is only growing at, you know, let's say 3%, Right, then it's only going to double twice, which is going to be a fourfold increase. So as long as the rich don't spend a ton of their money, they're going to be they're just going to have a lot more of it right. every generation. And so, and he shows that it's true over hundreds and hundreds of years. That's one model, and it doesn't explain Zuckerberg or Justin Bieber or Beyonce or anything. Yeah, that, right. Yeah. Oprah. So there's other models. You know, one of them's the superstar model, which shows that you know now because of changes in technology. You know, we can all see the best performer. We can all watch LeBron James on TV, right? We can all, you know, um, see movies. You know, see movies that everybody sees, as opposed to having to go to plays. Mm-hmm. Um, there's wonderful work by Duncan Watts and Matt Sigalnik where they did this music lab experiment where people could undergrads could download any songs they want, and they didn't see what songs other people downloaded. Right. And you got a pretty nice even distribution. But once people can see what songs other people download, you get this really distorted distribution where there's some huge winners. So if you bu- combine the technology that we can a lot of things are weightless and we can all sort of like, you know, they're information goods or entertainment goods, we can all see them at the same time and that there's huge social influence and we can see what everybody else is watching. Right. You get this huge superstar effect. And you get these winner take all economies, right? So that's that's another answer. But but then you can look at things like there's sociological models based on what's called assorted mating. And this model is so simple, but it ends up having huge power, and it's this. I, I love this, but I expect my undergrads, I'm like, okay, now be careful, this is really complicated. If you have two people who get married, the family income equals the income of the spouses added together. <laughs> and the students all laugh. Like, yeah. can you explain that again, right? <laughs> and we all kind of laugh about it. And I said, you know, it's frightening, though. This is a huge, this has enormous sort of, you know, econometric power in explaining the changes in income distribution. Because just throw in a couple you know, just people now marry a little bit later, right? Yeah. And so if in the past, you know, you know, you and I were to get married and we were both in undergrads or just out of undergrad and you were gonna be a doctor and I was gonna be a professor or something, well, you know, maybe we are, maybe we don't. And also not as many women worked, right? Well now doctors are marrying doctors, lawyers are marrying lawyers, professors yeah. are marrying professors. And so you've got high-income people marrying high-income people. And if you look at the correlation in highest degree earned, right, that's gone way up. And in particular, women who have graduate degrees tend not to marry men who don't have graduate degrees. And so what that does is that just creates a huge amplification. You know, imagine, like, I just create a population of people, and I give them all incomes. Yeah. And then I have the highest-income people marry each other. Well, that's going to be a difficult one to get—I mean— you know, unlike the superstar, you know, the superstar effect, you can think, wow, that's just is driving that. Right. The Piketty thing is like, this is just a fundamental part of economics, and maybe we should change our policy on estate taxes. But then this last one is just a sociological phenomenon. And the thing is, that could change in the sense that, you know, couples could decide, look, this is too much. Right. Right. I right. mean, in the sense that, like, why are we both working? Right. Right. Um, you know, why doesn't one of us become an artist or do volunteer? You know, so. There's a possibility that our narrative could change as a as a culture but each one of these things if, so I think people sit around and say we need to eradicate inequality. If you look at those three reasons, you know, as to why it's happening, I mean the only one that really naturally lends itself to sort of a policy solution is the is Piketty's argument. Right. Right, which is there. So the point is it's not that it's not that we want to have a horse race between these three models and say assorted and matching wins, right? A sort of mating wins. Yeah. But what we want to do is we want to say, "Wow, there's a lot of stuff going on here." I mean, sure. There's also poverty traps. Yep. Right, that are going on. So it's, it's just and so it's and what's really fun. I mean, here's what I think the beauty of the whole many model approaches.
1: Well, you got a, Just a few seconds left, yeah. Scott. So if you can wrap okay. it up, but you got The it.
0: beauty of this is every one of these models is pretty simple. So we can, as we just did, we can explain each one of them in like two minutes. And We yeah. so can very quickly get a bunch of lenses.
1: Scott, it's a great book. I, I've really enjoyed talking to you the last half hour. Thank you, sir and, oh, I g- and totally good luck appreciate with that. The time. Good Thanks luck so with it. Yep. Scott Scott Page of the University of Michigan, the book is The Model Thinker: What You Need to Know to Make Data Work for You.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.